doctors don't have a clear understanding of it. It started opening up my mind to like, how does the human body work? This is a real thing that really affects people. This is a major pain. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Stacy, who describes her major pain as multiple diagnoses and multiple mysteries. This includes latent autoimmune diabetes in adults, multiple mental health challenges, including severe anxiety with agoraphobia, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia, as well as chronic pain, fibromyalgia, and mobility challenges. So Stacy is going through a lot, and she did an incredible job of describing it all, talking us through it, and painting a picture of what it is that she's going through. I was particularly fascinated when she talked later in the episode about her schizophrenia, about seeing people that uh, she's not sure are there or not, and the ways that she navigates the world, um, knowing that some people that she is seeing may or may not exist. And uh, it's just fascinating and so brave of her to share this because there's so many social stigma about a lot of what she's experiencing. So, to be willing to share it publicly is incredible. And I was so impressed and we just had a really great conversation. I'm so excited to share it with you today. Stacy's mental health challenges have taken her to some very difficult places and there is discussion of suicide in this episode. So whenever something like this comes up on the show, I like to give you a warning up front and provide you with the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. You know, we talk to a lot of people on this show who have dealt with some severe depression and have thought about suicide, who have made it through. And I think that it's very valuable to talk about this and important to talk about it and to hear some firsthand perspectives about making it through and if you are struggling, if you need help, if you're not in a good place to hear it, I want to warn you and provide you with that phone number, 1-800-273-8255. There is always hope. There is always improvement to be had. I know firsthand how overwhelming it can be to be in constant pain and not know if it's ever going to stop, but there's always something possible around the corner that could help or could improve your life in some way or alleviate just enough of that pain to to allow you to live your life in some way. And that's what I'm all about is trying to find the best ways to live life inside of these limitations and challenges. And if you are struggling with this and you need help, please call that National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. There are trained professionals one phone call away that are waiting and willing and eager to help you. So I hope that if you're struggling, you will call. 1-800-273-8255. And on this topic of things improving and finding ways to live more of your life, something really big in my life has happened in that I got a new wheelchair. I got a Rogue from Key Mobility which is an incredibly nice wheelchair. It's so life-changing. It's a really big deal, and I really wanted to take a moment to talk about this with Andy, my partner, my girlfriend, uh, who you know if you've been listening to this podcast, just because this is such a big deal for not just me, but for our relationship and for our lives. So I really wanted to bring her on and talk about this for a minute. So Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jesse. So we picked up my new wheelchair a couple of days ago. And I just wanted to include you in talking about this real quick, because this is a pretty big deal for me to have such a nice wheelchair. It's a, it's, all, it's a little overwhelming to have such a nice wheelchair in some ways. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing to also just from the outside, like observe the difference in how it operates and like how much more fluid it, it seems for you. And um, 
yeah, and how much faster you are. <laughs> and there's just so much. Um, and I know you're still kind of adjusting to things being easier, which is a funny adjustment to, to make. But um, but in some ways, it was really, I always kind of made this analogy with the old wheelchair of like when people train in a high elevation for a marathon so that when they run the marathon in the lower elevation, it feels yeah. easy. Yeah. And I feel like you inadvertently did that because you you were for how long did you have that hospital wheelchair? I'm not sure. What month is it now? It's, it's just August, the beginning of August. Beginning of August. So like five months, four yeah, or five months? Four or five months, yeah. So I yeah. mean, that's a long time to be using a hospital wheelchair as a as a primary everyday chair. outdoor, yeah. you know, and you did a lot in it. Um yeah. and specifically like you had a goal with that wheelchair that around our house, you know, we live near some really big hills and there's sort of a main drag. We live some really steep hills away from, and your goal was to like get up to that main drag and you did in the hospital wheelchair. And now like we've gone up towards that area many times, or well, at least a couple times since you got the new wheelchair and you're just like, eh. yeah, at least from the outside, you just, you make it look effortless. It's kind of wild. Yeah, I mean, we got the chair just in time for a trip to go visit my family mm-hmm. uh, down in Oregon. And mm-hmm. we, you know, you weren't there on this day, but my my mom and my sister and uh, my niece all went up to a big hill and, you know, were out on the hill for, for a while. And I was just really shocked by how far I could go uphill. Um, yeah. I mean, the new chair is just such a game changer. It's just completely designed to move whereas mm-hmm. the old one was kind of designed to be moved by right. someone pushing you yeah um you know it wasn't really designed to get around on your own in yeah. and this new one is designed as an active everyday wheelchair for someone who wants to be active in a wheelchair and that's very much what i want yeah so yeah so i mean i've already built a lot of muscle for getting around in a wheelchair because it takes a lot of muscle i was shocked by that and i'm Mm -hmm. still so excited that i can even do this at all yeah because you know i've had diminishing use of my legs and we don't know why and i was i i didn't know that i didn't have diminishing use of my arms you know what i mean like yeah i didn't even know that this was a possibility and once we got in the chair uh the when we got the first chair i was like oh wow i can do this this Mm -hmm. is so exciting Mm -hmm. but i wish that I wish that this chair worked a little better. I mean, the the wheels are solid rubber and mm. have no tread. Mm. And it's just like I was sliding all over the place. And like that one time someone grabbed my chair and started pushing me without my permission. Ugh. Even when I slammed the brakes on, he could still push me. Yeah. And that would not be true in this new chair. And this new chair has, you know, the, the handles fold down so no one can grab me without consent. And mm-hmm. it's just like... You know, I, I posted a video of it up on TikTok and someone commented that's like the Mercedes of, <laughs> of wheelchairs or something like that. And I, I will say that there are some conflicted feelings for me of, um, you know, I had these like flashes of imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. flashes of guilt around having such a nice chair. It's just mm. so, it's so nice. You know, it's like, I, I don't know if they make chairs nicer than this. It's mm. um, like when I first sat in it and like took my first spin i had this feeling of guilt of like what did i do to deserve Mm. such a nice chair because we pursued getting it through insurance and uh we started that process months ago and i still haven't even heard back from them like 
we had to go through a physical therapist to get uh, an evaluation to mm-hmm. confirm for insurance that I indeed needed a wheelchair. Yeah. And they never replied. They never replied. I contacted yeah. them like five times. Yeah. And they literally never replied. Well, and I, the so we also, and you can speak more to this too, but we worked with um, a wonderful guy, Cody, who helped us kind of find the right chair, adjust it for Jesse's measurements, all this kind of stuff. And um, he was talking about, actually, if you have any ability to stand and walk, insurance is very cagey with providing support for people that aren't basically paralyzed or unable to walk. Right. And that that kind of just speaks to the greater issue of this perception that, and Maya, who was on the podcast, who's a fantastic advocate um, for people um, with all kinds of challenges, disabilities, different um, use of mobility aids, all this kind of stuff was talking about this perception of, you know, if you're in a wheelchair, you can't move your legs or you're unable to walk or you're paralyzed. And that there is such a wide range of people who would benefit and whose life is so much more improved and opened up so much more by the use of a wheelchair. But there's such a weird relationship to using a wheelchair unless you 100% can't, aren't mobile at all without it, you know? And, and unfortunately the, with insurance, it's kind of validating that narrative. Um, Yeah. Well, maybe we don't even know for sure because we couldn't even get the process started. Yes. Right. So it really came down to, you know, and Andy offered to get me a chair as a gift. Mm -hmm. And um, I really struggled with that for months, Mm -hmm. you know, the decision to, to do that because, because of these feelings of imposter syndrome and guilt, you know, over like the people out there who, who really can't walk, whose lives would be so impacted by a chair like this mm-hmm. versus what I used to have. But the thing is, is like, even though I can walk a short distance, um, I'm really trapped in my apartment, <laughs> you know, most yeah. of the time. Like, yeah. um, you know, towards the end of my dog, Miles' life, it was really hard for me to walk him. Mm-hmm. And I was doing it, but I was really struggling. And there's times where I'd get stuck and, I, you know, we were only going like a block at a time. And yeah. I couldn't travel further than that. And, you know, if I wanted to get out on a nice day and go for a walk, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. So, I'm like, this wheelchair, I am now, like, you know, even with the old wheelchair, I'm, like, taking myself to doctor's appointments by mm-hmm. taking the bus with the wheelchair and... Um, it just completely changed my life and so many more things that I could do. And the new chair is like, you know, a tenfold <laughs> improvement upon that where yeah. now I'm like, last night, you know, we, we got home driving back to Seattle and I'm like, do you want to go for like a little walk? And, <laughs> it was and I'll, awesome. you know, I'll take a roll. And we just got outside at night. And that that's like completely foreign to me to want to do something physical because it feels good. Yeah. So, you know, I do need this chair yes. and I... I've only had it for about five days at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm really feeling how much I need it mm-hmm. and what a huge difference it's providing. And I just feel so much more confident and comfortable with my ability to go do stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's so interesting because like society is telling me, you know, like that I don't deserve it or that I don't need it because, or well, this is all like internalized ableism, I guess is telling me this. Yeah. Um, not society itself, but myself telling me these things. Mm. Um, and then these feelings of guilt over the fact that, like, I have no job, I can't afford this wheelchair, you know, maybe insurance would cover it, but it's going to take probably a year to yeah. find out. And yeah. in that year, I'm trapped in the apartment or I'm stuck using this chair that is not working super well, but is still so much better than nothing. Yeah. So, 
it was really hard for me to agree to allowing you <laughs> to get me this gift. Yeah, well, I mean, I would say a few things to to what you were just discussing. Firstly, I want to validate your feelings. Like, I, I don't want to say um, you're not at all that what you're feeling about that imposter syndrome or um you know being deserving that i i like that that experience is totally understandable and um i just like want to validate that but at the same time i want to say that you are 100% deserving that you having mobility more mobility more freedom more access it's that doesn't you not having that doesn't help the community of people that need that as well. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like depriving yourself of that for any reason because you think that maybe there is someone else more deserving doesn't actually improve that. And if anything, you you allowing yourself that more of this access like improves so many things in in the world around you in the in your life. It, you're representing like a community that that maybe does need things and doesn't advocate or ask for them or accept them because they feel like maybe they aren't deserving and everybody deserves mobility every as much as they can have you know yeah, like yeah. that's and but I like again I I want to just say like that doesn't mean that your f- feelings aren't valid and also I mean <laughs> I just I know I'm 100% certain that you would if the roles were reversed you would absolutely do the same like and I guess sometimes in these contexts it's in life, when you're in a situation where you feel a certain way about ha- something happening in your life, maybe the imposter s- syndrome or being undeserving or whatever, like kind of being your own friend and <laughs> taking yourself outside yourself is an interesting exercise because if, you know, if you knew you, <laughs> if you weren't you, if you, you know, loved you and were someone in your life that loved you, like you would never question that this was a, a valid and important thing for you to have. And, and again, yeah, if the roles were reversed and I was having mobility struggles and you had the resources to help me get a chair like this, I, one, you wouldn't even think twice, I'm yeah. sure, before providing this for me. So, and then the final thing is like, and I hope this doesn't sound selfish, but it really improves my life too. You know, um, this is not, I, this, this chair is about you and is for you, but there are, so many other benefits and not just to me, to anyone who loves you in your life. Like you went and played tag with your niece this, yeah. <laughs> you know, this last weekend, which you would have never been able to do. I have never chair. done before. Yeah. I've totally. never been able to do that before because so, I've been, my mobility has been restricted since she's been alive. You know, she's totally. like, you know, like my flare up started before she was born. Right before. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, getting home and taking that walk with you, it sounds so silly, but that was so romantic to me. Like (laughs) that was so lovely that on the spur of the moment, we can just go decide to do something like that. And it doesn't take any kind of toll from you. And like, I don't know. I just, there's been so much hope that has been provided to me through this wheelchair. And like, that has been such a gift. So like you being open to accepting it is also part of that. And I appreciate that too, you know? Yeah, we had a lot of long talks about this because at first I was like, well, I really just want to wait and see what insurance will do. Yeah. And because we, I mean, just, you know, you really finally convinced me when you said like, look, this is going to take forever and it might never happen. And 
we ha- we're going to have all this time where you really need this thing. Yeah. And like, hopefully you get a diagnosis and mm-hmm. you won't need the chair anymore. Mm-hmm. But, and, and if that happens, like, that's great. Cause I also had some fear around that. It's like, well, what if we spend all this? What if I, right. you spend all this money on something <laughs> as a gift and then I don't need it anymore. I'm going to feel so guilty. Yeah. But you know, you said, well, then you can like give it to someone and that's going to be so life-changing for someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. It's just so, it's, it's so hard to be kind to yourself it is. in the midst of so much confusion over like, why, why do I even need this? I still don't even know why I need it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but I, but I can say that like five days into having it, it's so life-changingly good. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. so wonderful. Um, it's so, such a well-designed chair and I love being in it and I love, taking it outside and yeah. it makes me want to b- go out and do things so much more. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to uh, bike everywhere. Like I didn't have yeah. a car. I was just biking and busing here in Seattle. And I just mm-hmm. love that lifestyle so much. I love like being able to go do things on my own. And I haven't been able to in like yeah. five years. And now I can all of a sudden mm-hmm. because of this new tool. And I mean, this, this tool in particular is like, it's, it was actually built for me, you yeah. know, like it's, to my measurements, it, you know, the frame was custom made just for me and yep. um, everything is sized just right and it fits so well and it's so, you know, ergonomic and <laughs> I can go so much further and faster and with so much less effort than with the, the first chair that I had. Yep. So, yeah, I'm just, now I'm just feeling how great it is and how I just wish that everyone who needed a wheelchair could get one this nice. Like, I, if yeah. there was... You know, I always think about like if this podcast were to, you know, hit the big time. <laughs> if it was like <laughs> if it was really bringing in some um some money, yeah. like through Patreon or through advertisements or whatever we could do to generate some income. Mm-hmm. Um I would love to give back to the community in some way and yeah. you know, the things that I know have helped me are things that I'd like to help other people with. One of them was like our, you know, going on vacation to Tahoe was so great. It was mm-hmm. like, wow, it'd be so nice to be able to help other people take accessible vacations Mm -hmm. but the wheelchair is such a big deal it's like helping people who need wheelchairs get them you know and not just like a hospital chair but something um fitted to their body you know you mentioned maya and i saw a post of hers recently of how she's like having some shoulder problems because her chair is not exactly fitted to her and Mm -hmm. one wheel is further from her body than the other and it's Hmm. like when you can't when you can't use your walk your legs to get around yeah you need a good tool to replace it you know Yep. And like we live in this society that tells you that if you can't provide something for yourself, you don't deserve it. And I've really internalized that. Mm. And I you know, it took me years as as an adult, like for, as a young adult to become financially self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um after moving to Seattle to like find work that could actually pay for my lifestyle was really hard. Mm. Like I had some um inheritance money that I burned through over the first few years of living here and I mm. you know, I was spending more than I was making for a while. Uh, and I, f- I, I finally figured that out right in time as I like ran out of inheritance money. It's like, okay, yeah. well now I'm self-sufficient. And then this health thing happened and I have been broke for five years. Like mm. I don't even, I barely remember what it feels like to make a living. And mm. it, it really sucks. Like it really bothers me. Yeah. And where, you know, my, my disability application has, is being processed right now. I finally have a caseworker who I've been talking to. I just found out that they're going to set up an appointment for me to meet someone to have them evaluate my lifestyle to see if I deserve disability, which is terrifying, but very exciting because, you know, we're making some progress there. 
Um, and like I've said before, you know, most people who first time applicants get denied, I'll probably get denied, but I'm really hopeful that I won't yeah. because being able to have some money of my own to, to spend guilt free. I mean, I don't even know what that feels like anymore. Uh, like I really rely on my parents and on you and, uh, to, to exist part of having, you know, a disability or a mystery illness. is like, you really have to rely on other people Yeah, and, Learning to say yes when people have resources and are willing to share them is has been really difficult for me. And this yeah. was the first big one, you know, the first, well, I, that's not true. I mean, you've helped in so many ways, but this is the first like big purchase, I would say. Like sure. a big one-time purchase that could really make a huge difference sure. that I have agreed to. And <laughs> I'm so glad that I did, even though I have these conflicted feelings, because it's just such a powerful tool and it's, such a joyful thing for me mm. to have and i just feel like i feel cool in it you yeah. know i feel fast yeah. i feel like it we got a white frame and all black like seat and wheels and hand rims and all that and i just occurred to me the last time i bought a bike you know my bike that i used for years was mm. a white frame as well mm. and i'm just like wow i guess i like white frames yeah. you know <laughs> and this chair feels like a nice bike would feel you know the yeah. difference between like a a clunker, like a a beater bike, and a nice bike. Like mm. that's the difference between you know. I, I, even it's a, it's even more so of a yeah. difference in a wheelchair because you know, getting around with your arms instead of your legs, they're smaller muscles and they're harder to to build and harder to use. Mm -hmm. um, and just having the right chair makes worlds of difference. Yeah. Um. So I just really appreciate the gift. It's just oh. such a big gift. It's why I wanted you to come on and talk about it with me because I wanted to be able to thank you, Aww. you know, in front of this community that we're building on this podcast, because, you know, this is what it's all about is like finding ways to make your life more joyful mm -hmm. and to do as much as possible to get outside and to, you know, to live my life inside of these challenges instead of being stuck inside my apartment all day yes. trying to entertain myself. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just a world of difference. So I oh. just thank you so much, Andy. Oh my gosh. Of course. I, it's my pleasure. I'm so happy that we get, we have the, I have the, like, I am privileged enough to be able to do this. And um, it's like 100%. If I have money to give, like, this is exactly the kind of thing that I want to invest in because I'm investing in someone I love and, and, and I'm investing in our life together. And like, and I'm investing in where we are now. And and I think that's been something that we've discussed a little on the podcast, but just something that at least I can speak to as the partner of someone who has a chronic mystery illness. And I think this might be true for the experience of anybody with a chronic illness, potentially, but especially with a mystery illness is like, you kind of wait to make plans, you wait to do things, you wait to adjust your life to what you want it to be until you have an answer. Or until you get better or until, you know, and um, and I think like the chair has been a real step towards not waiting. Like mm -hmm. we are still hopeful to find an answer. We're still on the journey of finding an answer, but we're not going to wait to do the things we want to do mm -hmm. and to put money and time and energy or whatever we want to invest 
in where we are now because we hope we won't need it in the future. Do you know? Like, but if we do, we have it instead yeah, of waiting right. for a year to potentially not even get it through yes, insurance. Exactly. Yeah. Which would, I mean, that would have been so devastating. Yeah. I mean, and maybe insurance would have said yes, but we would have lost a year yeah. or, or however long it takes. And you even know? if they said yes, who knows what they would have approved, you know? Right. And I probably wouldn't have been able to get the exact chair that we got, which is, yeah. you know, like, let's find the absolute best chair for me is mm-hmm. what we did. You know, like, that's what yeah. I really yeah. felt like I needed. And I stand by that, you yeah. know, you know, when it's replacing so much it's got to be a good tool. And these tools exist. And the the barrier to getting them is just so Absolutely. high. It's just yeah. impossibly high for so many people. And that just breaks my heart, you Absolutely. know? And I feel so grateful and lucky that I didn't end up in that position where I couldn't get it. Because yeah. I would have just kept using the chair that I had. And yeah. there was some danger involved in it, you know? Like, with what I had been doing with it, mm-hmm. going up some steep hills and, like, mm-hmm. getting on and off the bus... Because I had no tread on those tires, I was doing some slipping and sliding. And I, know, I, I've I seen it. It almost made me so nervous. Yeah, I almost like bailed out of the chair accidentally a few yeah, times. Like, yeah. there's, I almost like end up sprawled out in the street, mm-hmm. uh, and it was a little scary. So yeah. this chair, I just feel the new chair. I feel so much more confident and comfortable and safe. Yeah. And, um, and cool. And you know, I you miss, cool. I miss that feeling of like being outside and feeling good you know because like for the past five years whenever i'm outside i'm in so much pain because i'm like walking somewhere and it's absolutely it's just so distractingly painful there's no way that you're going to enjoy yourself in that environment so being able to get out and just like you know cruise just feels so wonderful i know it feels wonderful to be around too and and yeah i think that like validating that it isn't fair that this is not something that anybody who has mobility challenges doesn't have can have access to like that that is bs and if anyone's listening and they're struggling with getting a chair or they're in a chair that doesn't suit their body or whatever like i just want to say like i am so sorry that's your experience um it is totally unfair and i i hope that you know, I hope that we can make steps as a society. And maybe, like you said, if you hit the big time, you know, like, <laughs> we can even make steps towards like creating some advocacy for that and some um, resources and opportunities for people. But at the very least, you know, there's a platform here and there's a community of people who see you and, um, you know, are are totally um, engaged with what needs to change. And, um, and I'm so glad, Jesse, that, you know, you've created this space and, and you absolutely deserve it. And I'm, I'm so excited about what's ahead. I'm so excited about what we get to, like the memories we get to build with that yeah, chair. Yeah. And, um, I'm feeling, yeah, just really excited and positive about the whole thing. So. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, just to wrap this up, one of the things I love to do when I produce this podcast is to. Uh, export a draft of the episode. And then, you know, what I used to do is just like go sit on the roof and get some sun and listen through. But now what I'm going to do is, you know, go for, go for a roll. Yeah. I'm going to like listen to the podcast and headphones and, Heck yeah. um, and just go out on the street and get some sun and go for a roll, get some exercise as I'm listening. And yep. I'm really excited to do that today. Yeah. You know, as part of my ritual of producing this podcast, it's going to be so cool. I love that. I'm just thinking of this too, and feel free to delete this if, if you don't think it's an, a useful thing to have on the podcast. But um, I was 
Jesse and I in August are going to be taking a road trip. We're going to be going to Montana and um, driving there over the course of a couple days. And we were talking about like um, we would love to know or have some resource that tells us what accessible trails like paved trails and wheelchair accessible trails are along our route. Yeah. So if anyone, well, I guess knows of any trails, but also knows of any websites or resources that like lead people to accessible trails or activities or whatever, mm-hmm. um, like please feel free to write the podcast or comment on the TikTok or whatever. Like I, I, I'm really curious about that. This is sort of a new world to us like um, kind of understanding the world of accessibility. I know there's so many people out there uh, with experiences that they could contribute knowledge or or resources. So if that's something that you can do, that would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. We're going from Seattle to Butte, Montana. We are. And, it, you know, my, my old mindset would have been, okay, we got to make this trip as short as possible right. because it's going to be miserable and, yeah. you know, uh, it's going to be really difficult for me to do anything. But now it's like, okay, well, we're going to we're, we're making this drive what cool things can we see along the way yeah and that shift in mindset is is because of having a wheelchair it's so you know? great yeah. yeah because i can now get around without extreme pain yep and without being completely limited in my distance by my body shutting down and stopping working so totally. oh it's just such a relief yeah such a relief like i didn't I, I always thought that i'd need a diagnosis for that to happen and i was just kind of in this waiting pattern mm. and to be able to live life inside of that waiting mm. is so much better than yeah. putting life on hold. Yes. I feel like I've I've missed so much of my own life mm. from the waiting. Mm. And I just, I wish I'd known earlier that I didn't have to. Mm-hmm. But it, it just took a long time to figure it out because doctors were not helpful whatsoever. <laughs> like, no, I mean, yeah. like I said before, it was my idea to try a wheelchair because I was in so much pain. I was like, I might need a wheelchair. Yeah. Never thinking that it was going to be such a joyful thing mm. that has really helped in my health because I'm now getting a little mm-hmm. bit of exercise mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't make me feel completely sick after. You know, Absolutely. I still like, if I use up a lot of energy, I still feel really sick after, but it's not. It's nowhere near as bad as it was before. Yeah. Where I'd be out for like a week or two at a time. Now I'm out for like an, an evening or, or a day maybe yep. at the most. Yep, totally. Um, after like a really intense roll, the whole next day I might need to chill. But mm-hmm. but I'm recovering so much faster now too. So yeah. this is just working so much better for my body. And yeah. having having this Mercedes of wheelchairs is <laughs> such a gift. So Andy, it's amazing. I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. And we have a lot more episode coming up. We have a great conversation Ooh. with Stacy that I'm about to share with you. So, Andy, thank you for joining us. Yes. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And the last thing I'll say before we jump into our conversation with Stacy is a big thank you to Steve Cavanaugh, who produced this episode of Major Pain through Patreon. And thank you to the rest of our listeners supporting us with monthly donations through that platform. If you'd like to support this show, head over to patreon.com slash Podcast. We also greatly appreciate any new five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. And don't forget to check us out on Instagram or TikTok at Major Pain Podcast. We just hit 100 followers on Instagram the same day we hit 1,000 followers on TikTok. So thank you to everyone who is engaging with us on social media. And to celebrate, I started a Twitter for this podcast. So you can find us on Twitter at Major Pain Pod. So let's hop over to my conversation with Stacy about her complex major pains, multiple diagnoses, and multiple mysteries. Stacy, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you for having me, Jesse. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I am very thrilled to be here. This is a great chance for me to share with you and hopefully help others uh, with similar conditions or ways to deal with things. Absolutely. Uh, Stacy. why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm 44 years old um, and I am a fiber artist in the state of Maine. So I process people's sheep's wool alpaca and I go from the animal to the final product. Wow. Um, I knit, crochet, weave, spin, felt. I kind of do it all. And um, the the job really has been, because uh, I get to do it out of my home, my saving grace with my medical health conditions. Yeah. My mom is deep in the fiber community as well. And that's how we were connected. You're a friend of hers. Um, I Susan in San Diego. I was there for 20 years and um, I had the honor of, of meeting that spinning community and um, they have really been instrumental in um, being able to function at the level that I'm at now. That's awesome. Yeah, I've done a little bit of knitting myself. It's it's really fun. I, I don't do it too often, but when I have, it's it's really rewarding. It's kind of, you know, Something about the repetitive motion is very hypnotic and relaxing. It's very therapeutic. Mm. Um, you know, being able to create with your hands and um, see the final outcome, uh, especially working from the sheep to the final, it um, it's just so rewarding to see uh, where our clothing comes from and, and all the way to the end. It's just... In- Wonderful. I wish everybody enjoy the fiber arts. Yeah, that's awesome. So do you shave sheep yourself? I don't. Um, I have been blessed. I, the reason I got involved with spinning was because of the San Diego County spinners being part of the back-to-back competition where you shear the sheep, spin the wool and knit the sweater all in a day. It's that eight person teamed event and it's all done to raise awareness for wool, what you can do with wool, but also to raise money for the team's choice of a local cancer foundation. And that's how I got started in the fiber arts was going to San Diego's competition. And I said, I've got to do this. (laughs) And from there, I've just taken off to the point that here in Maine, we've created a team and they competed back in 2019 and uh, last year, COVID happened, so they couldn't compete. But we raised $3,400 for cancer care, even without the competition. Um, cancer Care is a local cancer foundation here in Maine. And then um, this year, they did an exhibition, so they kind of did more education than sweater making. And we raised $3,200 for cancer care. Wow. So excited with the direction that it's going in. Um, and they want to, they want to compete. They want to do it. So, um, we're excited for next year. Wow. Awesome. That's so cool. Um, all right, well, let's get into this. So Stacy, what is your major pain? Um, so I have multiple diagnosis and then multiple mysteries. Mm. Um, I have been diagnosed with type one and a half diabetes, also known as LADA latent autoimmune diabetes in adults. Hmm. Um, Yeah, that's a big mouthful. Um, I've also um, had multiple 
mental health challenges. Uh, I have severe anxiety with agoraphobia, so I'm afraid of crowds and people. Uh, I also have been labeled as being bipolar. And uh, for lack of better understanding, they call me a functioning schizophrenic. Interesting. Um, And then I also suffer from fibromyalgia and chronic pelvic floor pain. So mobility is is a problem. Wow. So a lot of different things happening at once. A lot of different things happening at once. Um, so there, there, life has been a, a roller coaster of, of dealing with doctors and becoming my own uh, advocate and doctor myself, um, taking care of my own health because I've found that I just can't rely on the medical profession to look out for me. That's a common theme on this show. That's something that I've experienced and many of our guests have experienced is that when you have something complex or not fully diagnosed or explained, it can be really difficult to get doctors to listen to you and take you seriously. Um, Even harder when they diagnose you with mental health issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. Been labeled, and I, I use it as a label because they still don't know if I'm truly bipolar. Um, we just tried some new medication recently, which <laughs> makes it more interesting. Um, <laughs> so how does this, uh, you have multiple things going on. Can you tell me a little bit about how it manifests in your life and what, um, like, what the symptom picture looks like? So I can start at the beginning so I can reflect. Yeah. And in the reflection, I can give you that. Is that what, what That's you're perfect. Looking? That sounds great. Yeah, absolutely. I was 13 years old and I started getting migraines and we couldn't figure out why I was getting migraines. So I went to a local doctor. They did eye tests, found out I have a lazy eye. Um, So because of my lazy eye, I see through one eye at a time. So I will never have depth perception. My eyes have learned to switch back and forth. So if I were to try to correct it, they would, um, they're like, oh, well, you could potentially get double vision. I said, I've lived this, I'm not fixing it. So we're just going to go with it. Um, But it started when I was 13 and I, we couldn't figure out why I was getting headaches. So my dad said, hey, let's go to the chiropractor. He's right next, she's right next door. And I said, sure. She took x-rays and asked if I had ever been in an accident. And I said, nope, I've never been in into an accident. And my mom's like, well, you know, when you were two, you fell down a flight of stairs. You were in one of those walker things and the dogs pushed you down the stairs. <laughs> and uh, I, I said, okay, well, I don't remember that. She goes, well, it wasn't traumatic or anything. You popped up, you were happy, you were good. And the chiropractor's like, well, that could explain this problem. You have a reversed curve in your neck. Hmm. And it's the reverse curve that is causing the pressure on the nerves to trigger the headache. So we set up a treatment plan. I started getting uh, chiropractic care. And within three months, my migraines were gone. Wow. I have to go in for maintenance and that helps. But the, the, I was out of school for days at a time because of these migraines. So I saw her as a chiropractor. And then I also saw her massage therapist 
And they really, um, really helped me a lot in that treatment. Uh, a few years later, I started getting abdominal pains. Um, they couldn't figure out what was wrong. I ended up having exploratory laparoscopic procedures to figure out what was causing the problem. Doctors thought I had endometriosis. I, I'm only 15 at the time. So, you know, again, my parents didn't know any better. They're trying to solve the severe cramping and abdominal pain that I was getting. And... Um, they couldn't find anything. There was no endometriosis. Uh, also during that time, um, I started suffering from depression. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in Massachusetts, so that was my primary, um, well, it was where I spent most of my youth was in Mass. And then, uh, so my depression would be oriented with the seasons okay so, yeah okay well you have seasonal affective disorder mm -hmm. at that time they just labeled it depression but we can look back and say that's what it was yeah so they put me on antidepressants and i was on antidepressants and birth control at the age of 15 wow um which then triggered its own issues <laughs> uh at 16 the the pain still wasn't going away in the abdomen. We couldn't figure out what it was, um, and I was I was prone to strep throat uh, growing up. So I went to my doctor, who was not my regular doctor, and he prescribed um, penicillin. He prescribed three times the normal dose of penicillin to me. Wow! Within forty eight hours, I had an anaphylactic reaction to the penicillin. Jeez! And I breathing. Wow. Just from that point things on, compiling upon each other. Yep. From that point on, I then started having asthma problems. I had severe breathing issues with mold, dust, grass, um, anything was triggering it. Well, it just happened. I lived in a house that had severe mold um, and the air quality was so bad growing up, but my family couldn't afford to move. So I dealt with the medications and, um, and I'm kind of grateful for that aspect. I know it sounds weird to say to be grateful for being an asthmatic, but it taught me about preparing myself for environments. Hmm. So if I was going to go into an environment that caused, I knew was going to trigger my asthma, I'd make sure I was medicated properly for that environment. Um, and it's, helped me later on in life to prepare for we'll say lack of better terms an asthma environment but yeah. now it's more for my anxiety um and so uh with that it then triggered all my other medical allergies um i anything related to penicillin i'm allergic to we found out that because they gave me ceftin which was a distant relative of penicillin not even 24 hours. I reacted to that. Luckily, I knew what was happening and we were able to catch it before I stopped breathing. Um, and, I, and it was frustrating. It was, it was very frustrating because I'm a kid and doctors and parents and everybody are supposed to protect me and nobody could tell me what was wrong. Yeah, and it uh, sounds like they're causing 
sometimes causing more damage than than help by giving you medications that cause reactions. Yep. Um, and, and, and I was still dealing with the, the chronic abdominal cramping that nobody could figure out. Hmm. So that year when I was 16, this was back in 95, uh, my, my family went cross country on a road trip. And when you do any type of long trip, you start to eliminate certain things from your diet. Mm-hmm. Not on purpose, but because you're on the trip. Totally. Throughout that trip, whenever I ate anything with tomatoes, I had cramping and I reacted. Oh, wow. So it was the acid in the tomatoes that was causing an allergic reaction or a gastric allergic reaction. Um, and I was getting sick. Well, my mom loved to cook pasta. So we were having pasta with red sauce all the time. I loved eating cherry tomatoes right off the the plant. I mean, never thought anything of it. Um, So we found out I was allergic to tomatoes. That's amazing. That's amazing how you figured that out too. I mean, it's so, sometimes it's so hard to like, bodies are so complex and it's so hard to pinpoint something like that. And to, to figure that out is such a gift. Yeah. You know, I feel blessed that my dad was uh, on the fire department. So he's a first responder. He's also an educator. Um, He taught first grade. So having him in my life really um, opened my eyes up to the medical side of things and not always listening to doctors or I, I shouldn't say listening to doctors, not always agreeing right on top that the doctor's going to know everything mm-hmm. um, more how to listen to my body and to understand what my body needs. Um, so he was really a big, um, a big part of that in, yeah. in learning about myself. That's um, so important. Yeah. And I moved out to California um, after I graduated high school and college. And uh, amazingly enough, the asthma went away. Um, being out there, the, the mold, the dust, all of it, it was different allergies. So I, mm-hmm. I, I started to be able to get rid of things and I thought I was good. Um, what never went away was the seasonal depression. Mm-hmm. Um, even in San Diego, um, my body had grown accustomed to a certain environment. I, I mean, my, my genetics were East Coast, Massachusetts, and, and as much sun as I could get, it still goes through that cycle of, of lack of sunlight. Um, it's just a different lack um, is how I can look at it now. Um, we dealt with it with medication at the time, and, and it worked. And then I met my husband, and we had a beautiful um, son And we had tried for five years to get pregnant again and was told by many medical doctors that that was never going to happen. So I changed my focus and said, okay, not going to get pregnant again. We're going to deal with, you know, the seasonal depression and and that. And uh, I started not feeling good. And my husband's joking around. So he goes, I bet you're pregnant again. And I said, no, they said that's not going to happen. And he goes, yep, it is. And sure enough, he was right. Wow. Why, why did they think that you weren't going to get pregnant again? 
My first pregnancy was a difficult one in labor. Mm. We ended up having to do an emergency C-section. Uh, I was in labor for four days with my son. Wow. And I had a failure to progress. I really wanted a natural birth. Um, at the time, I was a massage therapist, and I was more into the holistics mm-hmm. of health, and I really wanted that natural birth. And I was doing really well. And then they said uh, on, the, on the fourth day, his heart rate started to drop, and I wasn't progressing. And they said, we can't wait. And so they did a C-section. And I think, you know, looking back, that was probably the beginning of some of my issues I have now. Hmm. Um, the, because, it, it was, because it was an emergency, I don't think they took the same care as a planned C-section. Hmm. Um, they were more concerned about saving Alex, my son, than uh, making clean cuts. Hmm. Uh, it, does that make sense, Jesse? Yeah, it does for sure. Right. Um, and, and I'm grateful that they did because they saved his life. He, he, yeah. he was all wrapped up and he wasn't going anywhere. Um, and I can now harass him every, every day around his birthday, four days prior. I said, yep, I'm in the hospital and you're not coming. (laughs) I'm a hard time every time. Um, so we have good memories about that. Um, but when I, when I was trying to get pregnant again, they just felt the scar tissue that had been created because of the, um, the first pregnancy and um, my hip um, canal, the, the, the pelvic canal wasn't, wasn't going to be good for birthing. And I said, okay, well, I'll focus on my career. I have a healthy, you know, healthy boy, wonderful husband. Um, I'm going to focus on that. And as it was, Harry was supposed to be going to Japan unaccompanied for two years. Um, Alex and I were going to stay in San Diego and everything was going to be good because Harry was in the Navy. And so this, this was all going to work out. And then it wasn't. <laughs> and when I found out I was pregnant and due in August, um, my world started to crash because... My husband was going to be gone. I had a five-year-old. I was now going to have an infant, and I had no support. Mm. Um, my parents were out here in, in on the East Coast. Both were in the education system, and I knew they couldn't get out to help me because it's the end of the summer, and, and they just couldn't drop their, their lives to come out. And everything just went wrong. (laughs) Um, Mentally, I went in for a prenatal visit. And according to the doctors, because I don't remember any of it, um, I had been unresponsive. I was there, I was letting them do whatever they needed to do, but I wasn't communicating with them. And I just started crying. And that was kind of the beginning of of the end, I guess, 
for for lack of better way of saying it. Um, because I don't remember a good portion of that pregnancy. Uh, even the the first two years of his life are a, a fog. Um, the depression really hit. That's where they um, came up with the classification of being bipolar. I started um, I started seeing things that weren't there and talking to people that weren't there. Um, I really wasn't in in the present. I wasn't in the moment. Um, and I scared a lot of people. Hmm. Um, I started having suicidal thoughts. I shut down and lost large chunks of time um, to the point that we had put Alex into preschool. I would pick him up and didn't remember seeing him, didn't remember picking him up. I thought he was a stranger in the house. I got scared. Um, Harry ended up not going to Japan. Uh, They quickly changed his orders because they needed him home to care for me. Um, And I wanted to hurt myself. I didn't want to live. I didn't want to be around. Um, I had attempted uh, to, to end my life. Um, and I was hospitalized many times for the struggles. Um, the anxiety came in because I started getting paranoid, leaving the house, um, afraid somebody was going to hurt me, following me, um, because of, I was seeing things. I was seeing people and, and hearing things. Um, I thought it was constantly being watched and followed. And um, that really sets in the paranoia of, of who's around. Um, I checked in a lot with Harry to see, you know, who's following me. Someone's here. We can't go out. I can't leave. I didn't leave the house for almost a year. Um, and when I did, I just panicked. I, I, I couldn't breathe. Um, after the pregnancy, they ended up doing another C-section with Zach. And um, after that C-section, I started having chronic pelvic floor pain. It hurt to walk. It hurt to stand. I couldn't lay down. Um, they had me on so many different medications for the depression, the anxiety, Um because one minute I was sleeping, the next minute I was up and I was up for 24 hours and or days upon end. And they just couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And it was hard. Um, and during that time, they also had me labeled as a type 2 diabetic. So they had me on metformin. And the medication list is just ridiculous, Jesse. Um <laughs> I I could put a whole session on on meds. What happened with the meds, though, is they would work for a little bit, and then I would start having the side effects. And if there was a side effect to be had, I had it. (laughs) Um, We tried holistics. We tried, you know, I still did the chiropractor, the massage. I got into acupuncture, and a lot of it helped. But at the time, I wasn't in the right mindset to deal with any any of it. Um, 
and we just it made it hard for Harry because he never knew what he was coming home to. Mm -hmm. And he wanted me to be better. Um, And that was the hard thing, but we did therapy, lots of therapy. I did uh, cognitive therapy, behavioral health therapy, uh, DBT, uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, um, inpatient, outpatient. And we just constantly had problems with all of it. I mean, DBT ended up being the best form of therapy. They had to do something, but it was never easy. It was never easy until I made that physical turn in my mind that I was going to start stepping in and making changes. Hmm. Um, And that's, it it took moving from San Diego because we moved in 2016 to Maine it took moving from San Diego, getting away from all the people. I now live very much in the sticks of Maine. Um, and being able to focus on me and not the medical and listening to what all the doctors were telling me. Because I had doctors saying, oh, you just need to diet. You need to go exercise and you're going to feel better. None of them understood that the pain was so bad. I couldn't go exercise. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, go try swimming, aqua. Yeah, I was great in the water. Getting out of the water, forget it. I I, I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand. Um, and I had two young kids. I couldn't do anything with them. Um, on top of the fact that leaving the house was terrifying. They just, they didn't understand. Yeah. Um, so it made it hard. It made it really hard. Um, I finally have a good medical team here in Maine. They're very open. They really let me make the decisions. Um, you know, I listen to them, but they, they have seen what I've done and all the tests that I've done. And they're, they're very supportive now. Um, before we left San Diego, we had a new issue pop up where um, my speech was wrong. Um, Harry and I had gone to pick up the kids and, and, uh, they, uh, the boys asked what I wanted for dinner. And out of the blue, I said, um, (laughs) worm guts and chicken balls. (laughs) And Harry and the boys just looked at me like, what the heck are you talking about? And I didn't think I was talking any differently. And, and so that really concerned Harry, especially when I started saying I wanted to go up the river to, you know, take the boat up the river. Well, the boys finally figured it out for dinner. I wanted spaghetti and meatballs and I just wanted to go home with, which was take the boat up the river. Mm -hmm. Um, but it created a lot of concern. So back to the doctors, we went And they did MRIs and they did CAT scans because they thought I had had a stroke. Um, I can gladly tell you after a lot of CAT scans and MRIs and neurologists and all of that, it's not a stroke. 
I still have speech issues. My, my words can change at a drop of a hat. I think I'm talking normal and nobody understands me. Um, they don't know why. They're trying to figure it out. The newest hypothesis is it's a disassociative disorder, part of the mental health. Because, of course, the neurologist said it was in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he said it was behavioral health and it was all in my head. Um, they were military doctors. We can't, when you're in the military, you can't say yes or no and really have a hard time getting second opinions because they all stick together. And especially with my history of mental health, of course, that's where they went. (laughs) Um, And it didn't matter. It didn't matter. My symptoms didn't matter anything else. Everything became mental health. It became the bipolar. It became the anxiety. Um, But nobody was willing to help me and, and figure it out. Um, and that was frustrating, very frustrating. Um, we now just live with it. It comes and goes. They still don't have a reason. The speech thing was a, a new issue, but they were still trying to deal with the mental health and the chronic pelvic floor pain and all of that. And they had sent me to physical therapy. Um, they had sent me to there's a special type of physical therapy. It's like a movement type physical therapy. Then they thought it was bladder issues. So they sent me to a different physical therapist. Um, She was actually pretty cool. She worked more with um, women and men that had pelvic issues. And some of her forms of therapy were more internal physical therapy. Um, So she was working on Kegels, which you work on as a, as a pregnant person with bladder issues. Um, and she was really helping. She was really making a difference. She also believed in cranial sacral work. I don't know if you're familiar with that. A little bit, yeah. Um, it's a lot of movement and, and muscle memory, trying to get the body relaxed because the spine and body has an energy flow. And when you hold different points, you can... Imagine, or I guess, imagery therapy type thing where the spine goes in one direction, the head rotates in another, an arm muscle goes in another. So each body part has a, an energy field and an electric current. And as a craniosacral therapist, you can hold the points in the body and feel where it's stuck. Much like acupuncturists work with chi and, and massage. So there's that whole holistic side of it. And she did awesome work. It didn't take it away, though. It helped lessen the everyday pain, but it never took it away. And in the meantime, they were really trying to push meds on me. They wanted me to try the different um, pain medications and all of this. And and again, I, I... react to everything Mm -hmm. so pain medications if it was supposed to keep you awake or or um supposed to take away the pain it made me pass out or i was wide awake for hours at a time and and hyper vigilant um and so i finally said no guys i don't want drugs i don't want the meds they don't help 
And I talked to my gynecologist and I said, look, I'm done having kids. This last pregnancy was torture. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I love my sons, um, but I am not having any more. I would like a hysterectomy. And I, think, I said, I think this is going to cure my problem, guys. And they really fought me on it because of my age and their fear that um, doing a full hysterectomy would put me in an early menopause. It would affect my mental health even more. They, they really fought me on it. And I said, you know what? I, I don't care. We're going to take it out. And so we compromised. Um, they took just, they were going to take just the uterus and the fallopian tubes. So it was going to be a partial hysterectomy and leave the ovaries so that it wouldn't affect my mental health so that the, the hormone levels would stay, stay okay. And the doctor went in and came out and said to me, she goes, Stacy, I am so sorry. That was the hardest surgery I have ever done in my 15 years of doing hysterectomies. Why? Because of the scar tissue. Oh, wow. What had happened because of the two C-sections that I had had, the scar tissue had caused my uterus to be a balloon. And the fallopian tubes attached to the ovaries, it was all stretching everything. And they were all stretching in to hold this balloon. So when she released the, the uterus, it caused the fallopian tubes to retract back so fast she couldn't catch them. <laughs> so I still have my fallopian tubes and my ovaries, but she couldn't find them after because of all the scar tissue and, and, and everything. Wow. And you, you're probably going to be in more pain to begin with. And I said, okay. Now I was waking up from the anesthesia and everything when she had said this to me. So I was like, okay, well, we'll see what happens. Because of past surgeries and how I know how doctors work, I knew because they had catheterized me. I knew the only way to get rid of that catheter was to make sure I could walk to the bathroom. And I could do it on my own. So I, I proved that to them. Jesse, I can tell you, it was, a, it was night and day. The wow. pain that I had felt was gone. Wow. That's incredible. I, from surgery. You know, there, there's that typical discomfort of surgery. But the pain I had been dealing with for four years was gone. Yeah. And you just kind of intuited that that was what you needed. I understood it, you know, being a massage therapist, I understood how scar tissue can make the difference, you right. know, adhere to the fascia and the muscles and, and things. So I had a feeling that it was all related, but I couldn't convince the doctors that that was the problem. When she came back and said, you know, this is the, you know, that this was the most difficult surgery. I'm like, I, I tried telling you <laughs> how bad I was feeling. Um, but that pain had gone away. Now I can, I, I mean, we moved out here and I could start walking. I had more movement. I had more, more energy. But I was still dealing with the depression 
the, the anxiety and the fibromyalgia, my chronic pain that's up my back, in my shoulders, in my neck, that hadn't gone away. Mm-hmm. But I had lived with that since I was 13. So I could work with that. You know, I, I, I could work with those, those challenges. It, it just is um, amazing the difference. I can tell you now, though, that I'm starting to feel a scar tissue build back up. Mm-hmm. So, again, I've gotten back involved with a physical therapist who has been very aggressive in trying to break up the scar tissue, understanding the muscles, and because and, I'm not doing surgery again. Um, <laughs> but we need to break up those muscles or the, those scars that are internal causing the problem. Um, you know, so there are days that my lower half of my body doesn't want to work. You know, the pain is excruciating. Um, so I have to sit, I have to stretch, I do yoga. Uh, I do progressive muscle relaxation, uh, which is a form of meditation. Um, And that has all worked for me in the past. So I do that on a daily basis now. Um, I see the chiropractor. I do massage. Um, That all seems to help. It'll never take it away. I've reached that point in my life. Um, I want to, I want to not focus on the pain. And just recognize it. Because when I start focusing on it, I start getting more depressed. And so that's where the mental health comes in is uh, my depression still there. I, um, I fight every day to get out of bed. I have to make that choice that today I am going to make one step out of bed. With the anxiety, I have to make one step down the stairs because I would be more than happy to put the covers over my head and not face the world. Yeah, um, That's not reality. <laughs> Life still turns. Um, medical teams make a difference though, Jesse. Absolutely. You know, having, having the right team now... Um, and it seems like my entire medical team is a lot younger than me, um, which is scary in itself. Because <laughs> um, a lot of them don't have the life experience. But what I've come to find is that the life experience isn't always what matters. Um, they're open to trying things totally. that the older doctors aren't. Totally. Um, yeah, and the, the attitudes towards mental health have shifted generationally so in that way a younger doctor might be more understanding and more open to to trying things as you said yeah and COVID has made a difference too Mm -hmm. um definitely on the mental health side um more people are understanding some of the anxiety issues i I hate to put a smile on it because i feel like haha you all understand i've been there get it you know i i'm finding a way out and you're just dealing with the beginning i think that sounds kind of mean but um (laughs) it doesn't make me feel alone yeah i had a similar experience with covid because i was on a what started as a medical leave and then just turned into me being home most of the time um with no job 
um, just dealing with my health flare up when I, you know, for the last five years or almost five years at this point, I was kind of living the COVID lifestyle before COVID happened um, of just like being home all the time and having to learn how to um, give my life meaning and purpose inside of having no structure. And then everyone else around me started having to do that at the same time. It was like, I get it. You know, I get it. It's, I've been doing this for a while. It takes some time. It takes some adjusting and some getting used to, to figure out how to live this way. Yeah. I've been, I've been pretty lucky um, with Harry being in the Navy. Um, I was able to be home with the kids. So, um, you know, there was, there was that benefit of, of financial stability. Um, I was a massage therapist. Uh, at the beginning of our relationship and in marriage. So for 13 years, I did massage therapy. I traveled to people's homes and massage in their homes, um, even throughout my pregnancy with Alex. And then um, I had to give it up with Zachary. Um, I did a little bit, but I, um, the anxiety started to get too bad. Yeah. Um, and, and so I was always my own boss. And after Zach was born, um, I, I couldn't function. So I wasn't working. I was home. I was, no, I was home. I was hospitalized. I was all over the place at that time um, under very strict care. And, and a lot of times I don't remember any of it. Yeah. Um, but being here in, in meeting the San Diego County spinners and, and being a part of that crew, they really saved my life. Um. I put it more to them because being able to knit, being able to crochet, um, later being able to spin, I was able to interact with people Hmm. because it was a calming function. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't feel judged with them. I didn't feel um, at risk. It was hard to drive to the classes because uh, it was a distance. I lived in Sierra Mesa. So driving out, I think it was like an hour drive. And that was difficult. Um, but once I was there, I was good. And I felt welcomed and warm and safe. And even Harry had gotten involved with them and, and been a part of things. So it was cool that he was excited and interested. And when we were getting ready to leave San Diego, we made the decision we were going to open up a fiber mill here in Maine, processing other people's fiber. And we knew it was going to take a little bit of time, but we figured I was in a good space health-wise. I could go work for maybe a yarn shop. So I, I applied. I went and worked for somebody. And I was on my probation period when I had uh, my anxiety flared and my speech went wrong. So I went into the, the shop with Harry because he was with me and we had gone to a doctor's appointment together and then the hospital because they thought it was a stroke had to have testing done again gotta love changes of doctors and venues and everything yeah go through all the process all over again (laughs) Um, and my my boss at the time said it's okay because my words were wrong harry was with me he was able to explain everything she goes it's okay take care of yourself we got it we'll see you you know when you're fine So it took about a week for everything to come back to normal speech. And I went in and she said, "Um, Stacey, I wish you had been more honest with your condition. And I said, I I was. 
I told you everything. Yeah. I, I told you how, how things could be that, you know, we had contingency plans. I could have, I could have worked. It was just my words that weren't right. Mm-hmm. And she goes, well, I need somebody more reliable. We're going to have to let you go. Mm-hmm. And just say, I, I was angry Yeah, for a long time about that. Even now I could say I'm really angry with them. <laughs> um, I will never go back into that store, but I, because of the area I'm in, I have to stay open-minded because it's a small community. Hmm. And so I'm not going to badmouth the store because she's got local products. She, you know, that, that people can use. But the fact that I was let go, not because I couldn't do the job, not because I was having problems with learning the equipment, you know, using their cash register, doing their, their tech stuff. It was because of my health. Yeah. I went, this is wrong. This is wrong. And I blame myself and it, it put me on a downward spiral right at the beginning of being up here. Hmm. It took a lot to crawl back out of that, but it was also a good turning point for me going, you know what? It's her loss. (laughs) It's their loss. I'm going to become known in this community for what I can do to help people. And I will never turn anybody away because of their health challenges. Um, I didn't have control over it. I can't automatically feel better or talk right or breathe and it'll be okay. Um, But to be judged on that and to have that in the back of my mind that I'm never going to be able to work. I can't help provide for my family. I can't help financially support my family. Um, It sucks. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I feel that. I I totally relate to that. I mean, I haven't been able to work in the last uh, almost five years. And, um, you know, I'm supported by friends and family. And it's really hard to feel a sense of self-worth in a society that completely judges people based off of how much money they make. And, yes. you know, our, our society is set up in, in this very strict way in some, in some ways. And one of them is that... Um, mental health is not looked at with compassion. And I do feel like this is starting to shift a little bit necessarily um, because mental health is a health challenge, just like anything else, like a neurological condition. Um, if a neurological condition is, is making it hard for you to speak, people are like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. But if you tell them that it's a mental health challenge that's making it hard for you to speak, they look at you like you're crazy and don't want to have anything to do with you. Uh, but I think oftentimes, you know, there could be some sort of neurological component that isn't diagnosed. Um, and also, it doesn't matter. It, it should be looked at with the same compassion. Uh, the, you know, it doesn't matter why something is happening. It's still happening. And yep. if a doctor can't give you an answer as to why, then they just tell you that you're basically not helpable because of your mental health. Instead of trying to help you through your mental health challenges, it's all completely backwards. I mean, you know, I've had some mental health challenges of my own. I've gone through periods of depression and on my own health journey. And 
you know, I've had testicular cancer. I have this bizarre undiagnosed condition that we're still getting, still working towards finding an answer for. And the hardest points of it were the parts where I was depressed. No doubt. Absolutely. That was the hardest moment of all of it. And those were the parts that I had to kind of just deal with on my own in private, in secret, because if I were to bring it up with my doctors, any progress we were making towards finding a diagnosis would go out the window. And I know that from experience, because as soon as, like you said, as soon as you bring up mental health challenges, the conversation with your doctor completely changes. It, it stops being a diagnostic process and becomes a, um, well, let's just try to manage your, your mental health symptoms. And everything else goes out the window. You know, they just want you to be on antidepressants. And I've tried several and none of them made any difference. If anything, they just made me feel worse because of the side effects, like you were saying. Um, And I really had to pull myself through those moments. And I feel so lucky that I'm able to do that because it's really tricky, you know, like the, the mental gymnastics one has to do to, to work through a depression alone is so hard. Why are we, why are we forcing ourselves to do this? You know, it's so frustrating. You almost feel like, especially when they are focused on this mental health challenge you're having, you know, they discredit everything else. Exactly. It's, it's, it's this. And so you're afraid to start bringing anything up because they're not going to believe you. Exactly. Or I know in my own head, I've had to fight the battle that, am I making this up? Exactly. Yes, me too. Is this a made-up illness? Am I am I purposely doing this to hurt myself? Mm-hmm. And I sit back and I go, that's just stupid. <laughs> I don't want to be in pain. <laughs> I don't want to hurt. I want to be able to do these things. But it's that battle that I'm constantly having with myself that I want to go out and exercise. I want to do things. I want to live a healthy life. Wait a minute, Stacey. You are having a healthy life. You are doing things. This isn't imaginary pain. It, <laughs> you're not making it up. You're not making it worse. It's happening. Um, but and and I, I have I, I'm blessed right now, Jesse. Um, I do have a medical team that understands. Yeah. Um, they're not pushing medication on me. They're letting me make the calls. They've seen the hard work that I've put through. They believe me when things are wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, they're not blaming it on my mental health. They're double checking things. Um, the new thing that I have to remind them, because they are doctors, is that I don't fit into a box. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that because being a diabetic, we get our blood tested Every three months, every six months, you do a really big panel. Every three months, you do an A1C. And my blood work has shown some discrepancies. And some few weeks, my iron was low. Another time, my iron was high. And they're just trying to, you know, figure things out. Uh, the other fun thing is my A1C. One minute, I'm at 5.6. Then I'm at 6.8 and, you know, they're like, oh, you're doing great. Your numbers are wonderful. Not telling me what my numbers are. And I'm like, so, so I have to remind them. Okay. So what, what are my numbers? Well, well, you're this number. I said, okay, great. What was I last, last time? Mm 
I have to remind them to go back mm-hmm. and check the previous records because they have their windows of average and they forget to treat the patient. <laughs> so I have to make them go back and double check things. And, and then they're like, Oh wait, no, maybe that's not so good. You know, because I am sliding in the wrong direction right. it's in that average normal low, but in a Stacy sense, it's going in the wrong direction. That makes perfect sense. It's yeah. High. And, and, and so getting them to, to relook at blood work um, instead of just looking at, well, you know, you are in the good range, you're in the low to good. Okay. So what was I before? Um that's important for myself. Yes, you've learned how to be your own advocate. And we all have to do that in these long-term chronic situations. You know, you have to learn how to speak doctor in a way <laughs> to get them to, to look a little bit deeper. I've had the same experience where um, my ferritin level was low for years, but the like th- there's different barometers of what a low ferritin level is depending on which medical center you're at. And yep. also, if you have like any movement disorder issues, um, I you know I saw this movement disorder neurologist who said, "Oh, your ferritin level is way too low." Um, like the according to most doctors, if it's twenty or higher, it's normal. But if you have a movement disorder, you want to be like eighty to a hundred or higher um, yep. to be considered normal, just to make sure that you know low ferritin is not contributing to the movement disorder issues. And my ferritin had been like hovering around 20 or even lower for years. And everyone had said, oh, it's really close to to the window that's normal. And like you look at the blood tests and um, if you're normal, it's like green colored. And if you're abnormal, it's like yellow or red. So if you're in the green... That's all they care about. It doesn't matter what the specifics of the person is. It doesn't matter that with a movement disorder, you're supposed to be like way higher, like four times higher. Those doctors don't even know that. They just look at the green and they think it's okay. So you have to find the right, the right specialist who understands the specifics of your body, your situation, and how it relates to these blood tests. And like you said, is it going in the right or the wrong direction? It's all so complicated. And yep. it's so hard to get a doctor to do more than a cursory glance because they're so busy, you know? Like yep. people like us, when we have something long term, it takes decades of going through hoops and, you know, hitting brick walls to finally have doctors say, okay, I can see that this has been going on for a long time. This might be real, you know? This might be something that's worth pursuing. It can take decades to get to that point. Um, yep. Yeah. And, you know, the, a couple of things that you said really stuck out to me. One of them was when you talked about um, kind of deciding I, I have to get better and sort of starting, starting this process of the mental work of trying to make that happen alone, on your own. And, you know, I've, I've been through that so many times where I'm just like, okay, I got to make the decision to do this. Like, what can I do? Start to like get creative about, okay, I can't, walk anymore. So, what exercise can I get? And I've talked about this a ton on the show recently, but getting a wheelchair was a revelation for me because I can get some exercise using my arms. And when I'm not on my feet, it's a lot easier. And I've been able to do a lot more, which has been incredible. It's like, doctors never recommended that to me. That was my idea. You know, I, yeah. I, I listened to that, that podcast, Jesse, and I was really happy for you. Thank you. <laughs> excitement in your voice of, oh my gosh, this wheelchair is is, you know, 
world changing. It, it just opens up the whole new world for you, but it's hard to get past that hill. Mm. Um, like you had said in, in your podcast of, um, you know, man, I'm going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of the year of my life. You know, when you got over that hurdle, you could hear in your voice, the excitement, the, 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 the thrill of, oh my gosh, I can go kayaking. Oh my gosh, I can, you know, I can do these things. Um, and I was excited for you to hear you, you have that option open to you now. Um, yeah. And, you know, I don't, I don't think about being in a wheelchair the rest of my life necessarily, because I have no idea, you know, and, and it's, it's so, you know, I talk about this all the time, but it's so hard to avoid these anxiety spirals. And my, my strategy is to stay present. Um, yeah. And yeah, stay in the moment because I might get a diagnosis next month. Like I just sent off um, spit in, in the mail. <laughs> I've sent so many bodily fluids in the mail. Like I've mailed my own poop at least three times. Um, <laughs> there's poop in the mail. People don't know this, but like when you do a, a test, you know, <laughs> you have to like collect a sample, put it in a vial and then like mail it. So... I've done that at least three times. There's poop in the mail, people. But I mailed my spit yesterday and I might, I'm, you know, they're doing some genetic testing and maybe they'll find something. Maybe I'll have a diagnosis. Um, that diagnosis could mean that I will no longer need a wheelchair or it could be confirmation that I do need the wheelchair. I have no idea. And it could also not be a diagnosis. And then I'm just kind of in this nebulous region of, of not knowing what I'm going to need and when. But... Yeah. As long as I am making the choices each day that are the best for me that day, and like learning how to do that took years, but as long as I'm doing that, the long term doesn't matter as much. Because if I'm happy in the present, then it's reasonable to assume that I could be happy in the future. And focused on the present. Yeah. It focused in the moment. And, and that's what I do with my anxiety. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I am in the moment when I start trying to think about the future. And, and what's going to happen that creates the anxiety. When I start focus on, I will never get better or will I ever get better? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it creates the sadness and the anxiety. So I focus on what can I do now? Yes. Uh, we've been training a service dog for the last year. Yeah. Awesome. So we have Miss Charlotte now and she turned a year old on the seventh. Um, and that's helped. We made sure that with our home, um, one, of, one of the purchasing qualities of it is that it had multiple levels um, with multiple bathrooms. Because when you have mobility issues and you have to go to the bathroom, running upstairs is not going to happen. <laughs> um, so that was one of the benefits. We also made sure that the stairs were wide enough to have a chairlift. Mm -hmm. If I needed a chairlift and I'm being realistic, it's not that I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, um, I don't, I don't know the word that I'm you're, trying. You're to not catastrophizing. You're just being practical. Yeah. I'm, I'm planning. Yeah. I'm in ahead, much like when I had said earlier, an asthmatic plans to go into an environment that their their triggers are in. I'm planning for my future. I know I'm going to get old, 
And if I'm having mobility issues now, I can only imagine what's going to happen <laughs> when I get older. Um, but the house was the perfect house for what we needed. And so having chairlifts, I'm good with it. I'll take an elevator up and down. <laughs> but I'm planning for that future, much like Charlotte is helping me. She's a medical alert dog, so she helps with my diabetic highs and lows. Um, she'll be, she's in the process of being trained as a mobility um, assistant. Um, so if I need to get up and move around, she, she'll be there you know, so she's helping me with mobility. When I drop things, she's able to pick them up and give them to me. Um, she's also there as as a tool with my anxiety. Um, and when I start to get anxious, she applies pressure, whether she's laying down on my seat or um, putting her paw on my lap. Um, I did a presentation last night with my fire department and uh she um, she knew I was anxious and she was pulling on the leash to try to get me to leave um, leave the room. The problem is I'm the presenter. I couldn't leave the room. <laughs> uh, she didn't understand that, though. Um, but it's allowing me to um, be more independent um, and, and not rely on Harry as much, not rely on the kids. I've also had to set limitations for myself. Um, my anxiety gets really bad before I go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So leaving the house, it starts to, to trigger, um, my, my chest starts to get tight. I start having trouble breathing. It, it just, everything, um, squeezes together and, and, and it just, I can't leave Yeah, and I have to talk myself through it to get out the door, um, and having her helps. But what I found is that on my way home from wherever I'm at, that adrenaline, that fight or flight to, to protect myself um, starts to wear off. Mm -hmm. And so I start to get really tired. And I found out that I started to lose large chunks of time as I was driving. Oh, wow. That's no good. Which is scary. Yeah. Uh, Very scary. I to a meeting an hour away from my home. And I don't remember the entire drive home. Harry was talking to me the entire ride home. Because I had hands-free, we were safe. But he was talking to me all the way home. I remember none of the conversation. So Harry and I sat down and we had a long discussion. I now have a perimeter and, and a driving distance that I can go into. Um, and... And it's hard to say that because I'm only 44 to say that, oh, you know what? I can't drive any further than 30 minutes away. And here in Maine, <laughs> everything is 15, 30 minutes away. Yeah. Um, you know, depending on where you're at. It's the common saying up here is, oh, it's just around the corner. Two hours later, <laughs> you're almost there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't but, drive anymore at all, really, because my dizziness and if I go into muscle spasms or whatever on the road, it's happened a couple times where I've had to pull over and I just like, you know what, this feels super dangerous. I just don't feel safe at all. Um, and sometimes I have a hard time controlling my my feet. And it's like, yeah, if I can't brake, 
you know, and I have no idea how long that's going to last for, but um, yeah, I mean, it's really tough to compare yourself to how you used to be or to other people instead of accepting yourself as you are and accommodating. Learning to accommodate yourself is so hard. Like if you need any sort of like disability accommodations, like I, I bought a, uh, a stool for the shower and I felt so lame when I did it. <laughs> I was like, well, sometimes I feel like I'm going to fall in the shower or I don't shower on some days where it's really hard to stand. I mean, you know, I, I, you know <laughs> are you familiar with the term spoonie? Like if you're a spoonie, yeah. You, so this is something common in the uh, chronic illness circle, where you know you measure out your energy in spoons, and if you're low on energy, you're low on spoons. Um, yeah. So some people refer to themselves as spoonies, but this is a common thing in the spoonie circles. Like, man, I don't have the energy to shower today, um, and I so I finally was like, you know, what if I got a chair for the shower? So I went on Amazon and I looked up some chairs with good reviews, and I got one, and I was ashamed, you know, I, I like wanted to hide it if people were coming over. It's like, I don't want them to think like I'm this, you know, broken old man who needs to sit in the shower, but it really helps. And, you know, I don't, I finally realized like, I don't have to use this. I can use it if I need it. And if I need to take a shower on a bad day, I can use it. And that's great, but I don't have to use it. And it doesn't, change who I am to have this thing. And now I've, I've come to really accept having it. And I, I don't use it that often, but when I need it, I have it. And it's such a relief. Or even some days I'll get out of the shower and then I'll end up sitting in the chair because I get really dizzy and um, my body is just like, okay, that was a lot of work. Let's chill for a second. So I now have like stools all around the house because I'm still not really using the wheelchair at home um, just for when I go out. And yeah, so the more I accommodate, the less pain that I'm in. And and you were saying earlier how the pain, like being in pain is depressing, right? Like when you think about how much pain you're in, it's depressing. So the more pain you're in, the harder it is to avoid that feeling. That's something that I'm still working on. It's taken me a really long time to not get sad when my body hurts, you know? It's my therapist put it one way. She's like, you know what, Stace, it's okay to give yourself permission to have a bad day. Exactly. Yes. Giving myself permission. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm like, but there's so much needs to be done. She goes, it's okay to be gentle with yourself today. Mm-hmm. Have a gentle day. And I'm like, but she goes, there's no but. You're going to be gentle with yourself today. Sometimes I need to be told what to do because <laughs> I, I'm a perfectionist. I like things done a certain way. It's kind of the OCD. They need to be put in a box and, you know, everything needs to have a shelf and, um, and I'm my toughest cr- critic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm like, I'm only 44. I shouldn't be having these problems. Um, and then I say to myself, up, oh, Stacy, you did it again. You should on yourself. <laughs> I- I've never heard that. I love that. You should on yourself. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the shoulda, coulda, wouldas, yeah. you know, I, I have to put those in their own box. Yeah. Um, and I laugh about it, just like you did. Oh, there's another should. I should do, the, nope, nope, we're not shoulding today. You know, <laughs> so, and I do, I on all the time saying it. Um, it's the realizing that I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. 
That's the hard thing, not allowing it to uh, take over the thought at the moment, reframing the brain, focusing on the facts. I do a lot of facts, Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of reframing the mind and staying in the moment. It's huge. Mm -hmm. Um, Even with the pain, it's okay to go take a nap. Mm-hmm. I'm tired. My body is telling me I need to go to sleep. The dishes will get done later. Feeding the kid. He's 13. Now he can feed himself. <laughs> um, you know, the house needs to be clean. It can be done tomorrow. You know, setting small goals in a day. Um, I need to get up and take a shower today. I need to make the bed. I write a list. I'm very big on the list. It helps. It helps the memory of who was I supposed to call? What was I supposed to do? But I write down a list. And when it comes to my train of thought on the list, it goes and it is either at the beginning or the end, but to be able to cross off that list that I did one thing. Yeah. If I can do one thing on the list, I was successful that day. Yeah. You give yourself achievable goals don't and then don't beat yourself up for not doing more you know celebrate the small victories i do a, a lot of what you just just described are similar uh mental processes that i have developed that have really helped me um so you mentioned early on a form of schizophrenia is that the the seeing things that weren't there it is okay yeah um i have uh i hear voices i see um people that aren't really there. Um, they're constantly around um, visually as well as audibly. Um, that's uh, <laughs> people kind of look at you a little strange when you start telling them that you can see and hear things. Um, and I shared this with the fire department last night and I made the comment to them. I said, you know what? When I tell people that I see and hear things, I portray onto them that they're thinking I'm crazy. Hmm. But when you start seeing a psychic or a medium who talks to the dead, they get paid for their living. <laughs> That's so I'm unfair. Crazy. <laughs> Double standard. Right. <laughs> um, but that goes back to the mental health that people have an image of terminology. Right. Mediums and psychics. You know, they get paid. People may think they're weird, but they get paid for what they do. When you label some somebody as a, as a schizophrenic, oh, you're crazy. Mm-hmm. We can't touch you. You're 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 part of that untouchable boundary. Uh, when medications and all of that didn't work to get rid of the voices and the hallucinations and the moving of objects and walls. Um, But I wasn't giving into them. They labeled me as a functioning schizophrenic. Hmm. Um, It kind of goes back to a little bit of the holistic training that I had. Um, I'm open-minded to mediums who can talk to the dead. Um, you know, I don't know if the people around me are dead. I don't know 
Um, I can tell you they're not all dead because there are a couple of them that are actual people that I know that it's hard to tell the difference between the real oh, person wow. and the not so real person. Interesting. Um, so a lot of those times I have to call my husband and say, you're on the road, right? You're not <laughs> right here. It sounds um, like a sci-fi movie I've watched. <laughs> I said, okay, great, because we're having a wonderful conversation, and I just want to make sure you're a part of it, too. So I'm involved, and we laugh about it. Yeah. You know, I could sit there, and I have, um, be angry about it, be sad about it, um, think that there's something wrong with me. And now we just chuckle. You know, up so and so's rocking out on the rocking chair again, or you know, um, Fred's walked by. Uh, a lot of times, they're just faces; they don't have names. They they just pop in and out, um, not knowing <laughs> what a schizophrenic is supposed to be seeing and realizing, feeling. I can't tell you if I have it or not, because I don't know. If the medical diagnosis of what I'm having is truly schizophrenia, or is it I'm overly sensitive to other people's energies hmm. and I can see and sense and feel everything else around me. Um, I don't, you know, why do we need terminology for those things? You know, at what point can we just be, just be, I guess, mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, and I think that's the position that I'm at. I'm just one with what's happening around me. Um, sometimes they're me and sometimes they um, can be downright nasty Um and it triggers a lot of the paranoia of I'm being followed. Who's real? Who's not real? Hmm. I, when I go to the grocery store, when I go to the bank, I make sure that I go to the same tellers. I go during the same time so I can begin to recognize the real. Mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 it's, it's, again, that prepare for an environment. I know when typically there are less people in a store. So I go in during that time. When I go in, I make sure I look at name tags and I talk to them and I use their name because if I use someone's name, they're going to respond to me hmm. and then I know they're real. Hmm. So I don't need them to know that I don't know if they're real or not mm -hmm. by using a name. I know at checkouts, when lights are lit, there's somebody actually there, you know, so I can recognize at that point the real because I'm using a name. I'm using that contact. Um, it's difficult everywhere else. Yeah. That's well, like handy. I have to say, it's just so obvious that you are intelligent and present and you are thinking about what's around you and processing it. And even if, and you are aware that some of the things that you see are not there, but that doesn't mean that you're crazy, you know? It's obvious that you're not. Just talking to you, it's obvious that you're not. And I, I just, 
I, I feel so passionately about this that, you know, we have a societal problem here because every movie that's ever been made about a schizophrenic person, they were the villain and they were a murderer, you know? <laughs> and like, that is a um, subtextual uh, repetitive clue that people internalize. And then when they hear that someone is schizophrenic, they, they're afraid, you know? And that's completely unfair. And it's just not the reality of what's going on for people who are living with that. So, I, I just appreciate you sharing this so much. I mean, this is so interesting to me because I, I've never had that experience. And you so eloquently explain what it's like for you. And it makes sense and it sounds reasonable and is a challenge that you deal with. It's almost like you have access to this um, layer of existence that the rest of us don't see. And it's just so unfair to judge you or think, think less of you because of that. And, I, you know, I, I, using the same example as before, if you had a neurological disease, and who knows, maybe you do. Uh, maybe medical science hasn't caught up to it yet. But if you were diagnosed with, um, you know, MS or Guillain-Barre or something like that, people wouldn't judge you for your symptoms. So, why, why can't we think of all diseases that way? Why are there stigmas around some diseases? You know, not every person with every disease is the same. And we've, we've talked to people on this show with the same disease where their experience is very different. Um, and, you know, that's one of the first things people will say. It's like, I have this disease. It's very different for every person, but this is how it manifests for me. Um, so, I, you know, everyone deals with mental health issues. It's not, it's not rare. Like, the, it's probably the most common uh, major pain there is, is to have depression or anxiety or anything like that. And to judge people for that or to judge people for schizophrenia, it's just very unfair. And it makes it so much more brave of you to come onto a public platform and share. And that just really impresses me. And I just, I have to commend you for that and thank you for that. I think the other thing too, Jesse, is that mental health is still looked down upon. It's exactly. still hidden. Yeah. There are a lot of people that in their in their treatment and their their goal with it, they're not all at the same stages and it's it's oh I'm sorry you have depression. Oh, I'm sorry you deal with anxiety or the other side of it. Yeah, I have that too. <laughs> I hear that a lot yeah. <laughs> or just this. Um, I look at my depression, anxiety. I don't look at it as, as a disease. I don't look at it as a, Oh, I have this. I'm sad. This is my challenge hmm. and it's a daily challenge. And yeah, there are days that it stinks worse than others. Um, and, and I wish I didn't have it. Um, but because I've had it, I have a better understanding of the world around me. Mm -hmm. I have more compassion mm -hmm. to what other people are going through. Just like I said earlier, you know, it sounds mean, but haha, -ha, all these other people are now going through anxiety and, and they're getting what <laughs> they're getting a taste of what I go through. Um, you know, but it should never 
It should never be hidden. Mm. Yeah. Hiding it causes damage. It does. It does for everybody. It causes damage for the family, for the caregivers, and for the person. Um, Harry and I have a rule in our house. Um, I am openly, disgustingly honest with him (laughs) on everything. I keep nothing from him. And I'm lucky to say that I married my best friend. Mm. He's been with me for 22 years. He stayed with me right by my side through the worst of it. And we joke around. We harass each other. Sometimes people are like, oh, my gosh, you guys are disgusting because you said the same thing at the same time. We do it always. He's the other half of my brain. Mm. But I can tell him on those days, babe, life sucks today. Um, I don't want to be alive. And when I find myself starting to want to hide things from him, because sometimes there are times we don't want to be honest with our loved ones, that's when I need the most help. That's when I need to force myself to call him and tell him what I'm thinking. Because if I don't, it's going to fester and it's going to build and it's going to be worse. Absolutely. That, that is the, that's like the, the theory behind therapy and that why therapy can be so helpful is because so often just speaking something aloud helps. It's like, it's like a pressure release valve. It's like you're a, a pot of tea and you're just screaming because you're boiling over. And, if, and therapy is like taking the pot off the fire. And it's, you're still a pot and you still got hot water in you, but at least the pressure can release and, you know, you can uh, just find some sense of calm within what's going on. I don't know why this is, but speaking things aloud does that. And it's a very common experience. It does. And, and I'm all about therapy. I think, you know, finding a therapist, and I, I word it that way finding a therapist because there are some therapists that aren't the right therapist for you. Absolutely. Same with doctors. Uh, I have, (laughs) I've met a lot of them. I mean, sometimes the therapist can make it worse. Um, I had one that I told that I was having suicidal thoughts. I didn't have a plan. I had the thoughts and he felt I was acting irrational wouldn't let me leave his office. He called the, the EMS, the 911. The police came. They handcuffed me. Oh, my God. Put me in the back of their, their car and took me <laughs> to Balboa Hospital, who told me uh, or told them, get those off of her right this minute. Because I just kept saying I did nothing wrong. Mm. I told the truth. I told how I was feeling. I, I, I told everybody what was going on and I felt like I was being punished because I told the truth. Yeah. And that was so de- 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 pre- detrimental to my mental health mm-hmm. very early in all of this that I'm terrified of my first responders. Wow. I see a police car, fire truck, anything go by. I start to panic. Just say I grew up with the fire department right next door to my house and my dad on the department <laughs> to convince myself 
that, oh my gosh, what are you thinking? They're not going to hurt you. You're fine. But my experience doesn't show me that. Yeah. So, you know, exposure therapy is huge for me. Um, like I went last night to my local fire department and did a presentation with them. I talked to them about my anxiety and my depression on top of um, I've had a few recent visits from my EMS because my speech was wrong. And um, my therapist who is new, she's now been with me for a while. She, even though she had had the rules we have rules, Jesse. Here, we, we we're big on rules. We had told her that if you know my speech went wrong, she was to call Harry first. You know, check with him. Well, she called Harry, but she didn't listen to Harry. So they thought I had had a stroke. See the theme going here. Every time my speech goes wrong, I'm yeah. having a stroke, and I <laughs> my brain scanned. Um, I'm so radiated. It's it's not even funny. But um, you know, they came in. Um, and it was an incredible moment because the, the, the EMS department came to different towns. Cause I'm in a small town. It's all volunteer fire department here. So I had two different towns here visiting me and one of the, um, uh, paramedics recognized what was happening and he cleared the room. They were all surrounding me and bunching me. I was cornered by like five people in my home, panicking, freaking out. And um, one of them recognized what was happening and said, you all need to back off and leave her alone. He took charge of the situation. In the meantime, we had gotten Harry on the phone and I didn't have to get transported and all of that. But to see that he understood and, and we wanted to make sure everybody else that would potentially come and visit me had an idea, um, again, being prepared for what could happen. Um, but there's also a, um, I wear a medical alert bracelet because I'm allergic to penicillin um, plus my anxiety and everything. And this medical alert bracelet is called a, uh, my ID and um, it's from getmyid.com. And what's nice about it, when you flip it over, it has a, a QR code to it, and it also has um, a phone number and an ID and a PIN number. But when they scan that, that bracelet, my entire medical history pops up for them. Wow. So picture of me, my name, my address, my phone number, my emergency contacts, what medical conditions I have, my allergies, my medication. I mean, Everything's right there, but they didn't know how to use it. <laughs> they weren't familiar with it. Um, and, and so last night's presentation was to explain that to them. And we had found out by accident, um, when you scan it, there's a button that pops up and it says notify emergency contacts. Well, I was with Harry at the time. And so I'm like, sure, go ahead, push the button, see what happens. I forgot there were two other people on the, <laughs> on the contact list. And within seconds, they got notified with Stacy's in an emergency. And it came up my GPS location, wow. um, which was huge. And it's free, Jesse. Hmm. 
all of that information is free. There's a paid for program too. It's like $1.99 a month. That's really good to know. That's a really handy thing to have. It's, it's such a lifesaver. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's just an incredible, um, credible tool because you can update it much like those engraved medical alerts. You have to engrave it or if something changes, you have to get a whole new one. This, you just update the information. Um, and, and again, it goes back to being prepared, Yeah, but you can only be prepared if others know how to use the technology. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I always try to have backup plans. Um, you know, if we're planning something important, I never know when I'm going to be feeling well enough to do stuff. So, you know, if Andy and I are doing something together, we try to have a backup plan for what she can do if I can't be there. Um, and that helps with my anxiety as well. Just knowing that, you know, I don't often have things scheduled that are make or break. I must be there or horrible things will happen, you know, and that's part of why I'm able to make this podcast is because everyone involved understands that. And I've had to reschedule a bunch of recordings and everyone's totally flexible and um, understanding of that just because we all go through similar stuff. We have bad days and some days yeah. you just can't function and you know, that has to be okay because yeah. we don't have a choice over that. I'm, I'm thinking about how, you know, this massive mental shift happened around the time of your second pregnancy. And, you know, there's so much that happens to the body during pregnancy, massive hormone shifts and so much change. I mean, as you're producing a life, do you think that something related to the pregnancy was involved in the mental shift that happened? It wasn't something that just switched mm. at the second pregnancy. Yeah, It was something that with the hormones, with the situation, with everything, I didn't have the tools and the ability to cope with it. Mm. Um, and it had just, the, the balloon had burst. I was done. Um, I did a lot of unhealthy things for coping me mechanisms as a kid. Um, my coping mechanisms weren't, I look at it and think they weren't typical ones. Um, most people would turn to drugs, alcohol. I hated drugs. <laughs> I hated taking the prescription drugs that I was on as a kid. I hated all of that. I never smoked because both my parents were smokers and I just hated the smell. I hated the disgusting feel of it. Um, and drinking, it just made me tired as a kid. So why was <laughs> that was just silly. Um, but I turned towards relationships. Um, sexual relationships was the direction that I had turned in. I found that um, I had a lot of power in that. Hmm. Um, I could tease. I could, you know, I could flirt. I could make a guy happy, make a girl happy. Um, and and um, I could say no. I had control of that environment. Um, and, you know, I can, I can honestly say that, you know, I wasn't um, 
I wasn't completely sexually active until after I had left high school and, and college. Um, but then I started experimenting with everything under the sun. Um, you know, my husband's incredible. He also realizes that I like girls. Um, you know, we exp- I experimented with being with women. Um, and I've always been open with that to him. Um, we joke around when we're driving down the road and I see a girl that I find attractive. I look over to see if she caught his eye and then we laugh and chuckle. Um, we have a unique relationship in that. You know, I, I understand. I'm also very much, uh, I crave the contact. Um, I, I, I crave the touch and, and, and it doesn't have to be sexual touch. It's just, the the and that's where fiber comes in too. Mm. I'm just that tactile person, that that feel, that energy, that that release. Um, but for me, sex and and having that control over a guy or a girl, that was my happy. Mm. That was my control factor. It wasn't always healthy. <laughs> a lot of things that I did wasn't always healthy. At the time, it was fun. At the time, I didn't think about it. I can now look back and reflect and go, those probably weren't the best of decisions. And it was the controlling aspect. Hmm. And it was how I coped and got through life. Yeah. Um, You know, it had a lot to do with the hormones. Like you said, a lot of people don't look into, you know, should they have put me on birth control at 13 years old? Should they have been putting me on antidepressants and done all the things that they did? Nobody ever thought about therapy. Nobody ever thought because I portrayed as normal, Jesse. Yeah. Even now, as I'm talking to you or anybody, <laughs> it's funny. I, I go around and, and I do fiber events. And then when somebody finds out that I have mental health issues or that I have severe anxiety and agoraphobia, and, and being there is terrifying me. They're like, but you seem so normal. You don't look like you have any problems. That goes back to the, am I making this all up? Is it just in my head? You know, but they're like, you don't look like you have problems. You look fine. Yeah, but you don't see everything that I have to do to be here. Mm-hmm. Every mental step I have to take to stay here. Mm-hmm. And the work that I'm putting through every second that I'm talking to you, you know, they don't see that because my illness is not visual. Right. And, you know, that's something that I think about a lot is that you just talk, your your story specifically, you know, we talked about how you're a perfectionist and you hold yourself to high standards and you... Um, you have to learn to not punish yourself for not achieving as much as you would like in a given day and setting smaller goals. But the other side to that is that all of the work that you've done and are still doing to function, that is so much work. You know, you're, you've done so much. And the fact that you did that mostly on your own, you know, you had to pull yourself out of, of this non-functional state. That is such a massive achievement that most people won't see. So, yeah, I mean, being chronically ill is a full-time job. So, doing anything on top of that is an achievement. 
because it takes so much to pull yourself up and to do that. And I really commend you for that. Defending it with your family, Jesse, that's hard. You know, my, my parents are still old school. My mom is under the belief that um, it was the pregnancy and it was the medications they had me on after. Now, I'm currently not on, and, and I want to make it clear that people need to make sure that they've discussed it with doctors that, you know, they're in certain places in their, in their own medical um, situations. Um, I'm currently not on antipsychotics. I'm currently not on antidepressants. Um, because of the side effects that they have all created for me in the past, we just tried to go back on something because we figured, okay, three, four years, it's been enough time. We can try going on something maybe that'll help with um, the increase in anxiety I've had because of COVID. Um, COVID has created its own world of anxiety for me. Um, and so we were trying to find some aids to help me, um, decrease the level of anxiety. And, um, one of the meds, um, started to trigger a manic episode Hmm. up until this point, my current medical team hadn't seen what they classify as a true manic episode. And that's because when I start to feel manic, I push my mania into my crafts. Hmm. That's when I become more um, crafty. I start doing five or six or seven or maybe 20 different projects all at once. Um, and I've started socks here. I've painted <laughs> this year. I've, I mean, I just have so many different projects going all at one time. They don't see that. I could tell them what's going on, but until they come to my home and see every single station that I have going on, <laughs> they're not going to believe me. <laughs> um, so when they gave me this new medication and it triggered a manic episode, um, I hadn't slept for four days. And Harry said, you need to stop this medication now. And I said, but, but they, they want me on it. He goes, no. So having Harry realizing it and having Harry step in, he goes, you can't do this. So they put me on another medication. That other medication was... Um, <laughs> they tried a new one, lithium. Hmm. They put me on lithium and I, I really fought that for a while. And they, they said, well, you need to try it. You need to try it. Okay. 15 minutes after taking lithium and I was taking it at night, I started cramping. I started vomiting. I started severe pain and I was like, this isn't good. Well, it's already in my system. I have to let it work its way out. So I called the doctor's office that morning. I told them the symptoms. He's like, well, it sounds like you might've had food poisoning. I'm like, okay. He goes, try it, try it for another night. Okay. So about noon time, I started feeling better. This is nine o'clock. He told me this noon time. I started feeling better. I took the medication again at six at night, 15 minutes after taking it, I started vomiting. I started cramping. I started everything all over again. 
Like, okay, great. Another 24 hours of dealing with this. And so I called again the following morning. I said, I'm done. I'm not taking this again. I said, it's triggering a reaction. I'm having the side effects. So they put it in my chart that I'm allergic to lithium hmm. because I had, in their minds, I had an allergic reaction, but they had to see it first. Right. You know, so, so I do CBD oil. I've been doing that for four years. It helps with the pain. It helps with the anxiety. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, I also have to be careful with CBD. Um, I have to take a higher dose of CBD, a very low dose of THC. Mm -hmm. um, because um, I'm already dealing with visions and hallucinations. I have to very much stay in control. And the THC messes too much with my with the other stuff that yeah. happens. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I'm still new to it. So, I, so I'm still trying to understand and learn. And somebody the other day said, you know, the way you need to take it, because everybody's full of advice, you need to grow it and then do the raw form. Don't cook it because that keeps the THC out of it completely. I'm like, that doesn't well, sound right. <laughs> we'll look into it. Um, you know, but there's so much out there natural um but at the same time natural can hurt you too totally. <laughs> you know but it it just makes it um makes it important to be an advocate for yourself absolutely standing up keeping track of your records keeping track of your um your blood work i mean that's huge uh, especially with the diabetes i had to do that right at the beginning um they had me as a pre-diabetic when I was pregnant with Alex. He's my oldest. Then I became a type. <laughs> the dog sounds like she yeah. wants to come out. <laughs> uh, then I became a type two. Um, and I was having problems with metformin, um, which is the typical medication that they throw onto all type two diabetics. And stomach cramping. I, I get a lot of abdominal issues with certain things. It just, my stomach doesn't like drugs or, or sometimes food. Um, and so, um, I said to my doctor, I said, can I just go on insulin? The body produces insulin naturally. Can, can we just help it? Can, can hmm. we go on insulin? And she's like, well, I can't prescribe that. You got to go see an endocrinologist. Okay, another doctor. Great. So we went to the endocrinologist. She goes, well, I can't just prescribe it without doing blood work for you. Okay, fantastic. She made me laugh because she took her blood work. And 12 hours later, she calls me and goes, um, Stace, I need you and Harry to come into the office. That's never a good sign. <laughs> you know, when your doctor says, um, we, we need to have you back here tomorrow or today if possible i'm like great okay sure i'll come in i go in she goes well i have news for you you're not a type two you're a type one and you've been misdiagnosed hmm. and that's why you're not responding to the metformin and i said oh okay well what does that mean well we need to put you on insulin <laughs> Okay, so that's what I was coming to you for in the first place. <laughs> Great. You know, I wasn't having to make 
any dietary changes because I had already made them being a type two. So there was no issue. Hmm. <laughs> uh, well, I got back here to Maine, meeting new doctors, getting a new team together. And the endocrinologist here took her own blood work and says, um, you're not type one, you're type two. Because <laughs> for whatever reason, in that blood work that she ran, the insulin had kick-started my pancreas to start producing. And so it was producing again. And she goes, but we're not going to make any changes. We're going to keep you on the insulin. We're just going to monitor you really close. And I said, okay, great. Well, I started to not like this medical facility and the way that they were doing things. There were other issues there as well. And uh, I changed medical teams. And I, my new diabetes, I don't, she's not an endocrinologist. She's actually a pharmacist. She's a pharma, pharmaceutical educator. So she works in the pharmacy sometimes and she trains other pharmacists other times, but she does nutrition and diabetes education. So she controls all my medications now. She's awesome. <laughs> um, but she goes, Stacey, you're not type one and you're not type two. You're a one and a half. <laughs> and the reason your pancreas started producing is because it got kickstarted with the insulin, but you're not always producing. You're sometimes producing, you're sometimes not. And we're going to watch you more closely. It's why your window is so small. It's why your numbers are, are all different. Um, and what she was saying made so much sense. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh my gosh, this is night and day now. So I'm on a couple different insulins. One is an extended release. And the other one I take with my food. I check my sugars. And, and I can float it and I feel so much better. I'm not having as many, um, as many challenges in that. Wow. It just goes to show that you just got to get more than one opinion sometimes, you know, it yes. took you so many doctors to finally get that correct diagnosis, which is, it's tough. I mean, we want to be able to I, I, I wish that we could just trust the medical system, just trust your doctors, but doctors are human and they get things wrong sometimes. And it's so important to advocate for yourself and to keep pushing if things aren't working and to talk to different people. And eventually it's like the curtains open and the beautiful music plays and then it all comes together and things make sense. And then you can make some real progress, but it just takes so much work. And, and you've, you've done so much work to get to where you are. It's really, it's really impressive. Thank you. It's it's been hard. Yeah, it's definitely not an easy road. Absolutely. Um, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I see. Um, it also comes back to I know I will never be cured. You know, because there's no cure for mental health. You know, um, there's how you handle mental health and how you live with it. Hmm. And if I look for a cure to fix my depression, to fix my, um, then I'm bringing up more stuff. You know, I'm bringing in the past instead of acknowledging the past and saying, yep, the past happened. 
I can't change the past. I can't change what happened to me back then. I can't do anything about the doctor's decisions and everything that did. Even wishing that things had been different isn't going to change it. Mm -hmm. It's what am I going to do in the future? And the future could be just this second. Could be, you know, later tonight. It doesn't need to be a month, a year, you know, down the road. If I stay in that moment and then in the next moment, I'm making those steps to be happy. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Um, you know, and I wish I wish more people looked at it that way. There are so many things in the world that they're trying to erase history and erase the past instead of looking at it go and going, the past stunk. <laughs> there were some bad things that happened in the past. There are some good things too, you know, but if we always focus on all the negatives and want to destroy it, it doesn't get rid of it. It was still there. It still happened. You know, it's it's acknowledging it. It's it's accepting it. And accepting isn't agreeing. I think there's a difference that needs to be made there. There's accepting what happened and agreeing that what happened was good. Hmm. You know, if you accept it, you're like, eh, it happened. It went by. You know, you can kind of brush it off a little bit. You know, to say that it was good or bad or degree or then you put, you're giving it much more, much more of a hold than it needs. You know, um, you know, I, I could say that, oh, it was my parents' fault, and oh, it was this, and it was that. And, you know, if they had, it happened. Hmm. They did the best they could. Yeah. They didn't know back then. Does that make ignorance right or wrong? No, it's just ignorance. Well said. Um, yeah. Stacy, you've done an amazing job today. You've really painted such a clear picture of, of what you're going through. I know we're just, I mean, we're coming up on two hours and we're, I still feel like we're just scratching the surface. Um, I do feel like we should wrap things up just because, you know, there's a lot to digest here. There's so much that we've gone over. But my last question for you is, what would you say to somebody who's at the beginning of a mental health journey? Let's say someone who's gone through something similar that you did after your second pregnancy where you um, had a time where you were kind of shutting down and you went through that period of having suicidal thoughts and you've come through and you are now on this better path and a road towards more joy in your life. So what would you say to someone who's in the midst of it? You're not alone. There are other people out there. You're, I think the biggest thing is you're not alone. Mm -hmm. Talk to someone, anyone, whether it's a best friend, a priest, Write it down. Get it out of your head. 
Um, our heads can sometimes be our worst enemies, you know, and, and even speaking it, if you can record it, you know, just get it out. Um, mental health, our own challenges, they're nothing to be ashamed of. You don't have to stay hidden. There's help out there. And help could be your therapist, could be your doctor, could be your dog, your <laughs> cat, a plant. <laughs> Getting it out. Because when you keep it in, you're hurting yourself. Yes, I love it. Thank you so much. Is there anything that you want to plug or share or point anyone in the direction towards? There isn't. I, I mean, oh, getmyid.com. If you're mm. not familiar with that, look it up. That's a I great tip. With them. Uh, I have no, there's no ties or anything with them except for the fact that I wear a medical alert bracelet. Um, it's just a great way for your medical information to get out there for um, first responders, for doctors. Um, it can save a life. Mm. <laughs> uh, if they use it right um, yeah and then always fiber arts find a hobby <laughs> keeping yourself busy um, especially with mental health finding something you enjoy and it's okay to take that enjoyment and make it a day absolutely because you know? on that bad day you need something you like to do it's okay to have fun Yes, give yourself permission to let some joy in your life. Wow, yeah. what an amazing conversation. I'm There's so much to think about and so much lived experience that is so valuable to share because other people out there are going through similar things and the isolation of going through it by yourself can be so damaging. So even if we, you know, even if you don't know anyone in your immediate life who's going through something similar, I'm hoping I'm hopeful that this conversation will reach you and whoever it is out there that needs to hear it. And the fact that you were willing to share and be so open and honest is such a gift. I really appreciate your time. Stacy. thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Jesse. It's been an honor to be here and, and to be a part of your podcast. And um, if I can help anybody, you know, with, with what I've been through to, to make them laugh and realize they're not alone, um, it makes me feel good. Um, it makes me feel like my journey is going in the right direction. Awesome. I, I love that. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons, including Naomi Adele Smith, and our $25 per month producers, including Steve Cavanaugh. Learn how you can support the show at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.